Psalm 18 says, For thou wilt light my candle. I like that. The Lord my God will enlighten my darkness. I want you to think about that with me for just a moment. Let that begin to set the course for the direction of our message today. For the Lord will light our candle and the Lord will enlighten our darkness. Now we're going to turn to John chapter number 12. And this has been a, a this theme here in John has uh, been a part of this message series, and we're going to be back on this passage of Scripture here in a few moments, but I'd like to go ahead and read it now. Here it's verses 35 and 36. John's gospel says, Yet a little while is the light with you. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness come upon you. For he that walketh in darkness knoweth not whether he goeth. While you have light, believe in the light, that you may be the children of light. Isn't that powerful? Amen? So now let's go ahead and go further into Ephesians chapter number 5. This was definitely a part of our scripture text a few weeks ago, and it's in verse number 14, one verse. Obviously, there's a consistent theme. The word light is appearing in each one of these verses of scripture. It's addressing the context of what I began to speak about several weeks ago. 14th verse, Paul now is exhorting the Folks at Ephesus, and he says, Wherefore he saith, Awake thou that sleepeth, and arise from the dead, and Christ shall give thee light. And I love that last phrase there, and Christ shall give thee light. And now, to help set the context for today, as we narrow this message down, if you would stand in honor of the reading of this final passage, and that's our tradition, I don't mean to stress your knees out a little bit, but I do want to, uh, we want to honor and reverence the Word of God, don't we, church family? Here's the eighth verse of 1 John chapter 2. It says here, again, a new commandment I write unto you. And notice this, read this very slowly. Which thing is true in him and in you? Because the darkness is past and the true light now shineth. The darkness is past and the true light now shineth. Now my verse, I'm reading from the King James Version. New King James reads easier for you. My vocabulary is trained in this, so I have to read it here. But I want to speak to you today. I told you on the phone tree I was going to speak about come to the light. But the more I meditated upon this message, I altered it some. And this phrase here in chapter 2 of 1 John's epistle this got down in my heart, and I felt like it brought greater clarification to the direction we would go. The true light now shineth. The true light now shines. So let's pray, and let's talk about this today. Father, we are humbled to be here. And God, the, from the time of worship, there was a, a, a celebration in our hearts concerning Emmanuel and the coming of Jesus Christ. And I'm so grateful to have a church family to be able to celebrate this moment together today. But God, I remember the words that... Shane prayed that when we would come to this moment right here, that the time of preaching, you would add your blessing. I pray, Lord, that the word of the Lord would be spoken with clarity. And that, Father, as I have prayed many times, I'm going to pray it publicly again, that, Father, you would make me as the oracles of God. But equally as much as that you would make me, uh, Father, in my limited capacity, you would supersede it by your supernatural anointing to be able to speak beyond even my own educational ability or my own uh, ability to, to communicate naturally, let it be supernaturally, I also pray for the listener today, equally as much that their heart would be receptive, their mind would be receptive, 
And yes, their eye would be receptive. They would be able to see things that they have never pondered previously. Father, I love that, and I love you, and I thank you for it in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen, and thank you so much for being here today and for honoring the Lord today. You're standing and reading Scripture. Let me take you just a moment of time into this journey that I began several weeks ago, and I feel so privileged here on a day where there is celebration. Sometimes, church, people can be affected by moods and seasons that they might be in, but obviously during the Christmas season, surely we can find a reason to celebrate. It's not dependent upon, let me say this, it's not dependent upon what's under the tree. It's dependent upon who died on that tree, right? And yet at the same time today as pastors, you know, I've been doing this for quite some time now, and that's in this my 23rd year of pastoring, so it's my 23rd uh, time or an attempt to speak uh, along the Christmas line. And so, you know, you search back through sermons and things that you've looked at, and I went into this particular series, and I wasn't caught up into uh, you know, any poinsettias or Christmas trees or anything like that, but I got this context of the light down in my heart, and I just kind of began to meditate on it and to see what I could do with that as I searched the scriptures. And I know that's that very familiar, you know, the lights of Christmas are very familiar to us. Many of you will go out at night purposely as a family or as a couple, and you'll drive along certain scenic byways just so that you might see Christmas lights. And so I wanted to begin to contemplate that because I know that's, a, that's a, a, a powerful principle in the Word of God. So as I began to meditate on it, let me tell you about this journey and how it kind of came together. Several years ago, I led our church on Wednesday night in a study that was totally new to me. And it was different from my journey thus far in my personal education. You've heard me say this from the pulpit that I didn't take the path of formal Christian education that I definitely believe in and I see the need for, but for whatever reason, the, the journey of life that I was on, I did not make that choice. And so I, 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 I went in, but that didn't mean I couldn't educate myself, and I could, but I thought about that for just a moment. If formal education is a little bit more of a direct path up a mountain, you know, I can get to the top of the mountain educationally, but it seems like the route I took, I'm up here, down there, up and around and all over the place. And in this study that I did several years ago with our church family, it was, a, it was a book titled Windows into the Bible, Windows in the Bible. And it was very enlightening to me because the author here shared that he believed that there were four lenses that every believer should read the scriptures through in order to understand it and to get everything that the author intended out of it, that you have to look at it historically. You have to look at its historical narrative. You have to look at it culturally. You have to see what was the culture of the times in which the author was writing, the people that he was addressing. And spatially, you look at the flora and the fauna often that was associated with especially the children of Israel because there was a unique window, uh, in essence, uh, that God has, has caused us. I mean, you know, typically you can't look at an ant and gain spiritual insight out of it. But when Proverbs chapter number 6 said, consider the ant, now I can glean, I can look at an anthill and get a spiritual revelation because God tied it to his word. Are y'all out there today? 
and then certainly spiritually. So that was a, uh, it was an eye-opening way and means for me to begin to study. And so as I went into this study about light, I wanted to do so especially in the historical context and the cultural context. So let that be in the back of your mind as we go a little bit farther and we're kind of bringing this sermon, you know, I suppose to a close. Sermon number one was the light of the world. The reference that Jesus made about himself that we're going to echo again here today. But he also said this in the Matthew's account in the Sermon of the Mount where he said, but you are the light of the world. And it's our belief that the church now, the ecclesia of God, emanates the light of God. And there will be more about that here today. That's how I began that message. And then I took you in the second week to let the light shine. And that's where the, in Ephesians 5 became our backdrop, that when you become enlightened. See, I believe that the Holy Spirit enlightens a believer. I believe I have spiritual understanding, not just mental uh, aptitude, but I believe that the Spirit of God. Having said, you can't, put a, you can't put, touch the Spirit like you can touch the physical realm. You know, but when we talk about the Spirit, you can't capture the Spirit with a, 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 you know, a photograph. You can't capture the spirit looking under the lens of a microscope. You can't, in any type of modern capabilities to track movements, you can't capture. Jesus said the spirit's like the wind. You can't tell where it come from and you can't tell where it's going. But all you can see is its effect. And so when you're born again, genuinely born again, we believe that the spirit of God comes into the heart and life of a believer. We believe that you become an entirely different person than you were previously to your profession of faith. You're made alive unto God. And with that comes a certain illumination, a revelation. If we read the scriptural record in John's gospel, we see that Jesus, when he foretold the coming of you and I call the comforter, the spirit of God, Jesus called him the spirit of truth. He said he would reveal things that were previously hidden to us, things that we couldn't see previously as the people of God. But now, because we have spiritual illumination, we can see things. We can understand things that a generation gone by couldn't have previously known. Does that make sense here today? Right? And so in saying that, the message that I preached to you many weeks ago in that sense was about that we understand some things that are morally right and morally wrong in our culture. And it should be the church. Ephesians 5 says it should be the church that's approving or disapproving of certain things. And that oftentimes when we say, man, how can people do such things because they don't have the light? Right? They don't know, they abide in darkness. They don't have the clarity of vision or the understanding or the perception that you and I have because God has illuminated us to the truth. Amen? And the third message last week was the light shines in darkness and the darkness does not overtake it. And I identified two particular areas that the early church confronted the darkness of the light of the gospel, and that was the failure of the hypocrisy of Judaism and then also idolatry. And then I identified two areas, and don't, don't, don't throw stones at me today, but I will bring that up just real quickly. I'll address that. But I always do so, I believe, in the right frame of mind. But I spoke that the modern church has to confront the darkness of abortion and same-sex relationship. It's the church's responsibility to shine a light. Well, I'm preaching way better than y'all shouting, but that's all right. So today, though, I want to see if I can affirm some things to you, principles of faith that I believe in. Let me tell you what I believe in today. I believe in God's redemptive plan. I believe in the scarlet thread of redemption that's woven all the way from the Scriptures, beginning in Genesis from the time that God himself slew an animal in a garden called Eden where man failed and broke the promises and the covenant promises of God and his nakedness was exposed and he had tried to hide himself behind 
his failed attempt at making clothing out of fig leaves. And God said, that's not sufficient. So God slew an animal and he hid man behind it. And we believe that that was a picture. It was a picture of redemption all the way there, all the way, all the way to the book of Revelation where the scripture talks about that our sins are washed by the blood of the lamb, that we can overcome our adversary and overcome our Adamic nature by the word of our testimony and by the blood of Jesus. A scarlet plan of redemption. I believe that today. And I, I believe, here it is very quickly, I believe that men were born sinners. I believe we sin. We've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. But I believe because we inherently received the, the Adamic nature, then we were going to sin. But God provided atonement for us you want to get me happy on a Sunday morning you start telling me about what Jesus did for me on the cross you start telling me about his blood and a covenant that he shared and spilled so that I could have access to God so I believe in that covenant I believe in mankind uh, when he sinned in the garden his ability to fully know and relate and understand who God was was darkened by sin when I look back at that plan revealed to me in the word of God I see that God first began to reveal this plan through a man by the name of Abraham. And he called him out of an idolatrous region called the land of Ur of the Chaldeans. The Bible says that he was called from, a, he was surrounded by, he, was, he himself believed in one God, but he was surrounded by people that worship and serve a plurality of gods. But God made a covenant with that man, formed a covenant with him, and promised him that Abraham, through you and through your descendants, all, all the earth is going to be blessed. You and I are blessed today because of that covenant made with Abraham that day many, many thousands of years ago. And then when we see the redemptive plan continue in Scripture, I see that God extended that to the descendants of Abraham that he had brought out of bondage. You know the narrative in the book of Exodus that the descendants of Abraham had grown and morphed from one family, the family of Jacob, unto a people, unto an entire people that were held in the bondage of Egypt for 400 years. But when God got ready to call them out, let me tell you, when God gets ready to call you out, there's no army, no matter where, it doesn't matter how strong, that can hold you back when God gets ready to call you out. And God got ready to call his people out of the womb of Egypt. For the scriptural record says, out of Egypt I have called my son. And he brought them through the, uh, the Red Sea. And he brought them to the place where he had met Moses uh, weeks earlier, perhaps even months earlier, at Mount Sinai. And there, the God that was hidden, hidden in the darkness, that God chose to reveal himself. It's a powerful record. You need to go back on your own and read it. It's in Exodus 19, Exodus 20, when God came down. And sat down on a granite mountain. And the mountain couldn't stand his glory. Couldn't, it began to shake. And, and so will you. When the glory of God comes on you, you'll shake and tremble under the power and the weight of his glory. And God came down and his audible voice was heard. A voice began to speak. And people heard the voice of God. And many of them, unfortunately, shrieked away in fear. But the scripture says that God gave them a law. That law was limited revelation. That limited revelation contained covenant promises, blessings that were dependent upon obedience to the Torah. Instruction was given for the children of Israel then to erect the tabernacle. It was a mobile modular place of worship that they could move as they followed the cloud by day and the fire by night through the wilderness journey, eventually crossing over the Jordan River into the promised land. And once they secured the promised land and God had brought them a measure of peace, you're familiar with the account that one day, 
David said, I'm going to build a house for God to dwell in because I dwell in a house of cedars, but God dwells in a house of a tent, a house of curtains. But God told David, I appreciate the fact that there was something in your heart that you wanted to build a house for me. But God said, I didn't ask you to build a house for me. As a matter of fact, God said, I'm going to build you a house. Now, you have to have that uh, spiritual ear to understand what he was talking about. He wasn't talking about a physical structure, but he was talking about his lineage. How many of you know that Jesus was born in the house in the lineage of David? And he was prophetically declaring the coming of the Messiah. But the son of David, Solomon, did erect a temple. It's known as Solomon's Temple in the Scriptures. And all throughout the Old Covenant, you read about it, especially in the books of Kings and Chronicles. And we find through biblical history that the children of Israel, who were given revelation through the law and were called of God to be near to his heart, would fall into constant apostasy. Has anybody ever read that and you kind of do so dumbfounded as you like? Because they're brought so close to the glory of God, and yet they were always falling into the deception of idolatry and apostasy. Until the time came when God was so grieved that the land was invaded by the Babylonians and the Babylonians destroyed that temple. The very temple that had been erected to the glory of God. Can I talk to you about that just a little bit? I want to take you a little bit further. And then the biblical narrative takes us in that we see the children of Israel get an opportunity. Seventy years later, it's called the Babylonian captivity. They get to return. And upon return, the thing that they were so adamant about was in order to live in the land, in order to possess the land, in order to have the city of Jerusalem, we must have a temple. For there on that particular mound, Mount Zion they called it, we must have a place, an edifice where we can come, where God will tabernacle among us. That was their expectation. That there in the, uh, the most sacred place behind the veil, in the most holy place, was the Ark of the Covenant. And it was there between the cherubims where God said, that's where I'm going to allow myself to abide. My glory is going to abide there. So that was in their minds where God tabernacled among men. And so the narrative in Scripture takes us in the, uh, the return, uh, it gives is through the pen of Ezra. And we see Zerubbabel leading the return. And then we see other leaders. And they begin to build this edifice. And this edifice doesn't look nowhere near as grand as the previous edifice during the days of Solomon. And that's how we close. That's how we close the canon of the Old Covenant. The book of Malachi, as there are issues that are being dealt with. Did you know 400 years of human history pass? 400 years of human history pass. And this is how quickly you'll pass it when you're reading your Bible. When you read the very fourth chapter of the book of Malachi, and you turn the page, and you turn it from Malachi 4 to Matthew 1, 400 years of human history have transpired. And now the temple that was small in, in comparison to Solomon's temple, now we see an entirely different structure. It's the same structure. But Herod, the Edomite king, Herod has beautified the temple. Now the temple that mound that was usually called Solomon's temple is now known as Herod's temple. And we see all the grandeur about it in the scriptures, in the gospel accounts. And it's in that temple, that very temple, that we find Jesus. It's in that very temple that we find the first record in Jesus' young life when his mother and father bring him up a two-and-a-half, three-mile journey back northward from uh, Judea through out of Bethlehem. They take him and they dedicate him at the temple. And it's there that we see the prophecies of Simeon and the, promise, the prophecies of Anna. And they declare that a light, a light has come. A light, I preached about it in days gone by. It's a powerful 
picture, and then we see Jesus associated with that temple. Then we can kind of see his life, and we, just, we, we see him just as an infant, and then he disappears, and then he reemerges, and he's 12 years of age. And his mother and father have traveled for one of the many feasts that the Israelites are required to make from wherever they live in the land to go and to worship God there at the temple, for there is where they expected God to tabernacle among men. And then we find them returning from that feast only to discover two days' journey along the way. They say, where's Jesus? I heard a preacher years ago preach a message, who lost Jesus? And they lost Jesus, and they couldn't find him. So they're exasperated. Then they have to go and make the journey back by themselves, and they search for three days all over the city of Jerusalem, never thinking to go into the place where his heart was echoing to be. And so they finally, perhaps in exasperation, go to the temple. And maybe they're there to pray. Maybe they're there to cry out. Maybe they're there to say, God, where is our son? Is he be taken or is he stolen? Where is he? And they hear the sound of the, of the religious leaders questioning someone. Then they hear a young voice quaking, not mature enough just yet, you know, hasn't reached uh, any type of adulthood, begin to answer those questions that are being posed by the sages of his generation, dumbfounding all those that are around. And they push through the crowd, and there, right there in the midst is their son. And they say, did you not know, Mary said these words, that, my, my, that your father and I, and you know that he was his stepfather. Come on, somebody. And, and so he said, you know, your father and I have been searching for you, and we, we can't, where, you, why didn't you know? Why didn't you tell us where you were at? And he looked at Mary and he said, did you not know that you'd find me in my father's house? What a power. Man, I'm preaching myself happy. Y'all may not be getting anything out of it. Thank God for giving me this time, though, for my spiritual uh, enlightenment today. I just thank God about that. And then we, we can jump ahead. 18 years later, and there we see Jesus again, this time in John's gospel, the second chapter. And this time, the zeal of his father's house has eaten him up. Because after the anointing of God's come upon him, and he's went into the wilderness for 40 days and fasted and prayed, and the Spirit of God is upon him, he comes down and he begins his ministry, first at Capernaum, then at Nazareth, and then back to Capernaum. He eventually goes to Jerusalem, and he's grieved because they made his father's house a house of merchandise, and he's frustrated, agitated, and the Bible records the first cleansing of the temple. And so we see a lot of things happening in association with that temple. We see Jesus himself teaching in the temple precincts, oftentimes when he was in uh, Judea rather than in Galilee. He often performed many miracles. The final week of his death, betrayal, and ultimately resurrection, we find Jesus performing many miracles. Matter of fact, the gospel says they brought the lame unto him. And the blind came to him in darkness, physical darkness, and Jesus gave them sight. Jesus, in the temple, he performed these wonderful miracles. And yet, oftentimes, in the temple, Jesus, as he taught, would make very controversial statements. And that's what I'm going to talk to you about today, closing this series some of the controversial statements that Jesus made, and we're going to try to understand them in their proper context. Because one is in John's record, and we've been talking about it for several weeks now, but I want to put it in the proper context today. It's in John chapter number 8, and we're going to go there. We're going to only read one verse in a minute, but not now. But I want to just put you, can I put you in the, in the go ahead and remove it real quick, Angie. You're letting, them, you're letting them in just a little too early right there on my, on that thing I'm hiding from them for just a moment. It's just real quickly, in John chapter number 7 was the Feast of Tabernacles. So that's what the Bible tells us that they were there for. 
they were there. Jesus was there for the Feast of the Tabernacles. And the Feast of the Tabernacles is a very historic time for Israel. It's one of the feasts that all of the Israelite men were required to come to Jerusalem and worship God at. So it was a time of celebration. Listen to this. It was an eight-day celebration. It's like Christmas for us, eight-day celebration, not just a singular day. And the writers, the Jewish sages in the, in the Talmud tell us this, that there were four 75-foot-high candlesticks in the court of the women that were used during the Feast of Tabernacles. Because it says in chapter 7, Jesus was there because it was the Feast of the Tabernacles, and it bleeds over into the 8th chapter, which is where we're going to be in just a moment. So we associate that that was the same week. And part of the festivities of the week included the lighting of those candlesticks, 75 feet all the way into the air, that they would light these candles, and they would celebrate God giving illumination to the children of Israel during the Exodus journey. Remember, God led them by a cloud by day and a fire by night. And so they would light these, they would light these lamps at nighttime. And many times some of the religious leaders would come and they would take lamps in their hands. The, the historians tell us they would take lamps in their hands and they would dance, literally dance physically in the temple all night long. And celebration of God because they believed that that light represented not only him leading them out in the exodus, but also the light of truth that they had been given through the Mosaic law. And did you know Josephus tells us that every courtyard in Jerusalem would be illuminated by that light that would come out of the temple court of the women during the Feast of Tabernacles. And so if we understand that, now we can believe, understand this a little bit farther because something very significant takes place in John chapter number 8. And because before we read verse number 12, the most famous part of this passage is verses 1 through 11. Because in that context, during the day, Jesus is teaching in the corridors of the temple. And as he's teaching, they bring him, the religious leaders of the day, bring him a woman that's caught in adultery. And she's shamed because of her transgression and her sin. And you and I know that those religious leaders didn't really care anything about her and her situation, but they cared whether they could catch Jesus in his words that they might use to accuse him because he had came unto his own and his own did not believe in him. And so they brought this woman and they cast her at Jesus' feet. And then they took the Torah, the law of Moses, and they said to Jesus, and they said, in the law... In the, law, in the backdrop of the candles, in the backdrop of the lampstands emanating the light out of the temple, in the law it says that she is to be stoned for her transgressions. And they waited for Jesus to do something. And he answered them not a word. And so he just dropped down on the ground. He's just riding in the dust. And then he stands up, stands erect, and he looks at them. And he doesn't respond to what the law Said He just simply said, he that is without sin among you. Come on, somebody. Say, Pastor, is this a, a, Christmas? Yeah, it's a Christmas message? If you'll stay with me, we're going somewhere with this. He said, he that is without sin among you, let him cast the stone at her. And then the Bible says that being convicted by their own conscience, you could hear the sound of rocks dropping at their feet as the least of them to the greatest of them dropped the rock, and walked away, not casting a single stone at the woman. And then one of the most powerful verses of Scripture, often overlooked, really very culturally relevant today. I won't develop this thought today, but when Jesus saw that they had all left, he asked the question, and he said, Woman, where are thine accusers? 
has no man condemned thee? And she, you know, from a heart broken, knowing that she potentially might die that day as a result of her transgression, Jesus said to her, she said, No, Lord, no man hath condemned thee. And then his words, how they echo truth today. How they echo, but I'm going to show you the contrast in just a moment. He said, Neither do I condemn thee. But go and sin no more. Now, isn't that a culturally relevant thought today? We don't uh, condemn as we reveal the truth, right? But we do charge people by faith in Jesus' name to go and sin no more. Now, let's look at that 12th verse. Angie, if you would, put that on the screen for everybody. I want you to see this real quickly. Then, immediately after that, Jesus said to them, now remember the expectation of the Jew was the temple was erected and the temple had the light and it had the law and it brought about revelation of who God was including his judgment and they wanted to uh, pronounce judgment on the woman caught in sin and we know that Jesus was not taking away from the reality of her sin but we understand according to the law that the sin of adultery was was gross immorality and according to the law there was death and there was nothing that could atone for it there was not a single sacrificial system that could atone for it but perhaps when Jesus said neither do I condemn thee he was looking ahead in time to the day that he would hang on a tree and he knew that his blood would have the atoning power to deliver her from her own sin and, and, and the sin of all of the world and that because of his blood one day, one day mercy could triumph over judgment and so he said, look at his words he spoke to them, I am the light of the world he who believes in me shall not walk in darkness but shall have the light of life, the law was good, it was light and it revealed the father but one greater than Come on, somebody, one greater is now in the temple to share the light of understanding and the revelation of God. If you're here today, God's calling you, walk in the light of life. Come out of darkness. Come to the light. Live in the light. Be the light. Receive the light in Jesus' name. Let me share with you another passage just real quickly. John chapter number 10. Are y'all out there today? I've got a few amens that I'm getting back, some feedback. You're helping me in this quiet crowd on this, what we do is a celebration of Christmas today. But this is my gift to you. I believe this. If I, I could put a package together, I have. It's this message today. It's a revelation. It's of who Jesus is. It's what he's brought, the clarity, the understanding, the light. Men only knew God through obscurity, through darkness, and even then through the veil, the thinly veiled texture of religion. But now, because Jesus Christ has come, we have a whole new insight. I love what John said. The true light now shineth today the true light I can know God you say pastor oh if I could only be like Elijah if I could only be like Elisha I can know God in a way that they did not know because I've got the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit not just upon me upon my shoulders upon my head but with me always the power of the Holy Spirit and so do you if you believe the true light now shineth and in this passage John chapter number 10 I've used this two years ago, and I want to backdrop it again just real quickly. John chapter number 10, verses 22 through 25. Let's go ahead and read that real quickly. It's on the screen. It says here, and it was the Feast of Dedication. It was Jerusalem, and it was winter. Jesus walked through the temple and caught in Solomon's porch. Solomon's porch was the leftover part of the original Solomon's temple that lay immediately east of the temple precinct in Jerusalem. Jesus often taught out of that precinct. And the Jews came rushing to him 
And they said, how long do you keep us in doubt? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Look at this next verse. Jesus answered them and said, I told you, and you did not believe. Now stop right there, and let's see if we can put all this together. And this is where the historical and the cultural context says it was the Feast of Dedication, and it was winter. What does that mean? You and I would pass over that so quickly in our studies. Actually, it's commemorating the very thing that the Jewish culture is going to commemorate today at sundown. Today at sundown, it's Hanukkah. And Hanukkah in the Jewish culture is a celebration at a particular moment in Jewish history between this called the intertestament period. I mentioned it earlier, 400 years where we look from in the scriptures and we have no record, but history tells us of trauma that was taking place. And I don't know that much about it, but I've sure enjoyed going back over the latter few years and studying and reading about it because the Syrian king that was, uh, the Seleucid king that was uh, uh, so in opposition to the Israelites of the day that were dwelling in the land of Israel were, was violent. His name is Antiochus uh, uh, Epiphanes. I probably can't pronounce it correctly. But that's close enough for a hillbilly from Wilburn. Come on, somebody. And so, but the Bible said, or the, the historical record is that he was violent in his hatred against the Jewish people. And he sent armies to destroy the people. And the, uh, the historical record tells us that on one such occasion, they went into Jerusalem and 40,000 people. Can you imagine that? The city of Jonesboro slaughtered in one day. The other 40,000 taken into slavery and captivity. And they defiled the temple that we've been talking about. They defiled it to the degree that they erected a large altar over the brazen altar in the court where he commanded that all sacrifice to God would cease. Matter of fact, you would be killed if you sacrificed to God. And they began to sacrifice pigs on the altar. Pigs on the altar to Zeus, the Grecian god. And this began to reverberate through the Jewish community. And finally, a priestly family, the Hasmonean family, had had enough. In a critical moment, Matthias stood up and he defended the orthodox belief of the Jews. And it launched guerrilla warfare. And that guerrilla warfare moved to a rebellion that eventually led to the recovery of the temple. And they drove the Syrian army away. And the scriptural record is that Judas, uh, the Maccabee, the, the son of Matthias, that, that when they took the temple back and they cleansed the temple, that the menorah, the seven-branched menorah that is in the holy place, that illuminated the holy place inside that beautiful temple that had been erected, that there was only enough kosher oil, there's only enough kosher oil to light the candle for one day. But Jewish legend is, is that it burned for eight days. For eight days until they could cleanse and get kosher oil to continue in, uh, for, the, for, the, for the menorah. And so that's why the Jews celebrate eight days. Well, here's what, here's what the Jewish historian Josephus tells us. Is that when Jesus was walking in the court, Jesus walking in the court, as they celebrated, the Jews would put those candles in their window. And as they put their candles in the window, the entire city would be illuminated. It would be illuminated by the light. Listen to this. They came to Jesus in that backdrop. Remember the historical and the cultural context. And they said, tell us who you are. And he said, I told you as the city was aglow with flame and light. And as the mount was aglow with flame and light. Jesus said, I told you two months ago. And you didn't believe me. I am, you want to know who I am? I'm the light of the world. He that believeth in me will not walk in darkness. But you shall have the light of life. What a powerful word that is for us today because let me tell you today, he's still the light of the world. He's still the revelation of God. He's still how you and I can know the Father intimately and understand him 
and begin to grow in grace and grow in the goodness of God. And so today as I begin to close this message, I want to tell you as I take you to a passage of Scripture, I just believe today that Jesus Christ is the light. I do. I believe you said, Pastor, I, I, you know, I just, I would like to be able to understand God. I'd like to be able to stand, and uh, you know, you're going to live a lifetime of growth and maturation, and you're always going to be ever learning and growing. But let me tell you, God can unveil himself to you if you'll just come to Jesus. One of the scriptures that I read last week was that the truth is in Jesus. Can I say it to you one more time? The truth is in Jesus today. The truth is in Jesus and so the point that I was making today as I close this message, and I want to have a, just a little bit of liberty in closing this, is I took the historical context of the city of Jerusalem with its temple and the expectation of the Jew that that edifice would radiate with the light of truth. The light of truth was the law. And that was their expectation. But Jesus himself sat on a mountain called the Mount of Olives adjacent from that temple and he promised that that temple would be utterly destroyed in one generation. And history records for us that it came to pass exactly as he said. And if you think about that, to the Jew in their heart and mind, then the light has been snuffed out. But I want you to know today that light burns more brightly today than it ever has previously. Because God doesn't dwell in temples made with hands. Right? But the light... The light of God that lightens first the Jew and also the Gentile is the Lamb of God slain from the foundation of the world. You can't see God unless you see Him through the lens of Jesus. Right? In Him was life, and in Him was the light of men. He came into His own, and His own received them not. But as many as received Him, to them gave He power to become the sons of God. You can be a child of light if you'll go to the light and you'll believe in the light. When I was thinking about this, and I'm not going to put all these scriptures up because I've run out of time today. When I look to the book of Revelation for just a moment, you can look at it and read it differently. And we all do. And that can be a confusing and a, a culturally it can be we can argue and theologically different positions related to it. But there's a few passages of scripture that we often associate entirely with heaven. And we think about it. In heaven, we think about the temple and the presence of God and all those things. But when you look at it from a little different lens, and maybe I'll take you into it next week a little bit further. But I remember what John said. John said, I saw a holy new Jerusalem coming down. For a new heaven and a new earth have been created. And you and I often think about that as the consummation of all times and a physical kingdom and a physical city. But I want you to look at it for just a moment today through a spiritual lens. Remember, there's four different lenses you got to put on to look at the scriptures. you got to look at it historically, culturally, spatially, and spiritually. For John said that the temple was passed away and it was gone. But there was a new people in the earth. And there was a new city. And he said, this city is the new Jerusalem. And John said, I looked in that city and I looked for a temple. And I couldn't find a temple. For he said, the Lord thy God is the temple thereof. 
And then he said, I looked to the sun and there was no sun. I looked to the moon. I looked to the star. And I looked to the candle. I looked to the candlesticks. I looked to the menorah and there was no menorah. Where does it gain its light? But John, the revelator, said that the Lord revealed to me on that day that the Lamb is the light of that temple. And I believe today with all of my heart, whether it's a white uh, four-walled building of a church in rural Arkansas or the large edifices around it, does not matter. The edifice is not the people of God or the house of God. It's the church united by common faith that when we come together, we become the house of God, the city set on a hill that cannot be hidden. We have a light in us. And what is that light? That light is not what, but it's who? It's Jesus, the light of the world. And you can come to church and still sit in darkness. You can come to church and you can be frustrated by a long-winded preacher like myself watching your watch, trying to get home to watch the Dallas game. But let me tell you today, I want you to know you got to come to Jesus if you want true spiritual light. Jesus is the light of the world today, church family. You'll never know God. You'll never have peace. You'll never have clarity in your heart and mind until you see Jesus. 1 John 2 and 8 says that the true light, hear that today as I close, the true light now shineth, and he can light every man that's in this world. But you have to believe. Paul told the church at Ephesus, he said, come to the light. Believe in the light, Jesus said. Paul said, if you'll come to him, Christ will give you light. Let's let our heads be bowed and our eyes closed for just a moment of time. Father, today I've shared all that's within me today related to this subject matter that time would allow me to share adequately and fairly. God, I prayed very privately and very diligently that the hearts of the listener would be ready to receive. And I want to ask today for the next moment of time that you would give me this opportunity to speak to someone whose head is bowed Your eyes are closed for just a moment. You're here today. A family member invited you. Friend. It's the Sunday before Christmas. It's the Sunday that you come to church occasionally. You've been to church many times over the years. But there's still a darkness in your soul. A darkness that seems you say, "I, I believe in God, but God is clouded. I don't have clear understanding. I want you to know today, in order to know God, to know the Father, you have to know him through the light that Jesus gives. Did you hear that today? Through the light that Jesus gives. I want to ask you today, and I want to ask every man and woman and boy and girl among us today to pray. To pray. And to pray this prayer with me today. And this prayer would be, To ask the Lord to open your eyes. Remember what it said in the Psalms? The psalmist said that if you'll come to God, he will enlighten your darkness. Now, church family, don't be distracted by anything today. A meal this afternoon, the holiday events that are in front of you. This could be one of the most important moments that you've ever made in your life. Did you notice I didn't say come to the church for the church will enlighten you. If time would have allowed me, I would have plainly said, don't go to Judaism, the religious uh, cycle and circle and system of the Jews. That won't enlighten you. But come to Jesus. Look to him today. If you'll look to Jesus, 
than you can see clearly. He will illuminate your heart, your mind. You can know the Father in the riches of his grace revealed through the person of Jesus Christ. You're here today. If you're here and you say, Pastor, I've been 